forgotten club. It feels like we are out of place even among the people who received our soul's greatest scars because some of our most important experiences are things we shouldn't and don't want to share. Our dividing wall feels something like a hospital curtain, a way to politely conceal our pain for our own privacy and the comfort of others. That doesn't mean my experience in combat ruined my faith. For me, it strengthened my faith in many ways. I know Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord, kind of in a way David knew him as a warrior in battle. He protected me from death and injury many times. I've stepped on mines that didn't go off. Once I was fired at at point-blank range and was not hit, but the tree behind me was shot in half. Yet when we thought of coming home, my officers told me, be careful of what you say because people will not understand. Those of us who didn't listen to him, listen to him found out that he was right. When I got home, I spent hours standing in the shower. I think I was trying to cleanse myself somehow. How do you explain that to someone? So to put others at ease, we shut all this in, but for us, it's always there just under the surface. Can you see how challenging it can be for a combat vet to fit into a church setting? How isolating our experience? How different our perspective? Can you imagine how we feel when people complain about schedules or needing a volunteer for an hour once a month? or what we think when people complain about people in professions who risk their lives every day to keep us safe. We know what it's like to be on the front line, the firing line, and many of us came home to people who misunderstood and demonized us. Even though adjusting to a peacetime environment has its challenges, I have always felt that High Point Church is now my home. Here I find rest, refreshment, and sound teaching. People accept me, accept me for who I am, and even say they love me. What a great place to worship. Still, the harsh reality of combat and trauma takes its toll on all of us. We're all fighting the curse, the flesh, and the devil. We have our Vietnams, the death of a loved one, divorce, enduring illness, constant loneliness, children that break our hearts, addictions and sin that beset us. You can feel like you're dead even when you're walking. I believe this church could become a much a, as a hospital as it is a place of worship, that we can become wounded healers in the process. But first we must bring our wounds, our fears, and our sins into God's healing light. This must be done in a safe and understanding environment. We must strive to be gentle with each other. This should not be a place that shoots its wounded. In the war we did everything we could to save men that, we, that couldn't be saved, but that wasn't our job to decide who could be saved. Jesus intended us to be like that too. His healing comes when his safe place is also an honest place. I found this here at High Point Church, and I'm encouraged that we are trying to grow in it together. Thank you. I know there are other folks in High Point who have that experience who may not have known Charlie had that experience. So I hope for some of you who've been in conflicts or have professions like that, Charlie's a very open guy. And Oshel has some training in ministry and he's very loving. So you'll have to speak up when you talk to him, but he's a great person to talk to if that's your experience. Let's pray together about this. Um, God, we know that in our culture, there's a very loud conflict sometimes between some things we want in relationship to justice, like racial justice, and it becomes very easy to turn and attack people involved in these very painful professions like police and soldiers. And Father, sometimes it feels like a wife fighting with a husband where they're both right and they don't get the differences between them. And God, we pray so much that the church could be a place that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility would so come down that we would be able to respect the people who sacrifice so much 
to protect and help us and love people who are frustrated with the way our society functions. At the same time, willing to be sacrificial ourselves and understanding ourselves. And so to accomplish these things, we, we thank you for the people who see a nobility in the calling of serving us in ways that they know they are going to receive these deep and moral spiritual wounds, who are willing to face them, who took them on our account, many of whom are in the ground because of it. But yet, God, we are—it's so easy for us to be flippant about the sacrifice of others. We pray, God, that you would help us so love our neighbors, that we would grow in a sense of gravity about the pain that they suffer, the battle that they are fighting, and the sacrifices that they make. We know that it is so easy to want a better deal for ourselves and to think other people should do more. And we pray that you would give us a special reverence for people who make great personal sacrifices and to respect them and love them. I pray that this church would be a place where we are wounded healers, where anybody can talk about anything that they talk about earnestly and in good conscience, and that people can find healing from any wound, moral and spiritual whether it is something that they have done or done to themselves or has been done to them. We pray, God, that in every way you would help us to remove the dividing wall of hostility. We, we confess and profess that is one of the things you died for. You removed the dividing wall of hostility between us and you. And God, please help us to remove it from between each other. We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Can everybody hear me? There we go. There we go. Good morning, High Point. You can have a seat. My name is Femi Shikoya. I am one of the elders here, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. Um, one of the things I would say with the scripture is also think through the fact that a lot of the early church didn't have Bibles, so this is the only way that they got to hear people um, actually speak the words written to them. Uh, the scripture from this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Um, it can be found on page 1778 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians chapter 4, starting from verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, his grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in the deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, honey. So I, I want to just keep repeating for the—we'll uh, do this for a few weeks until we get it, that that little, little golden window signs signifies the first nine minutes after the service is over, which is the golden window opportunity to meet new people, because then they just leave if nobody talks to them. 
So what we encourage people who are part of the High Point Church, listen, if you have friends here, they'll wait for you for nine minutes. Just say hi, talk to somebody, and help, help them feel welcome. Because otherwise, it's really hard for people to break into conversations. Especially, most people, listen, most people aren't gregarious. Especially as we get more focused on computers and screens, some people literally are, are incapable of starting new conversations. But there's still people who want to have conversations and be loved, right? And then some people just are introverts and whatever. So like, you making the effort, because you're the host, right? This is the body of Christ. You belong to it. This is the Lord's house. You are the steward of that house. You're the host. To allow a new person to come into the church and for nobody to speak to them is tantamount to somebody coming to our house and us not speaking to them. Do you understand? It's a very serious and grievous sin. We don't want to do that, right? So when you see that little window, just let it remind you for those first couple minutes, just ignore, ignore your friends and talk to somebody. You can have a meaningful conversation in nine minutes, and then you can include them in your conversation with your friends. Turns out they like things too. New people, right? Um, people who are here. Speaking of people who are going out, I'm going to be talking a little bit about people who are sent out to do new works. Um, but Everett and Ella Schroeder are over there. This is, I, my understanding is your last Sunday before you travel eastward to a country that I won't name to do a work that I won't talk about. Um, <laughs> Let's pray for the Schroeders before they're going to leave for about 10 months, and then they may not be coming back to Madison. The crew may send them to another city, sadly, but um, they'll be in heaven, so, and they'll visit probably. Okay, let's pray for them. <laughs> Lord, we, we lift up um, Everett and Ella. We thank you for the ways they've blessed this local church, the way they've been involved in the body of Christ in Madison, the way they've worked on the campus and the university to try to lead students to you and disciple students to be more fully your followers in, in spiritual maturity and unity. We bless them. We thank you for them. We love them. We profess that and confess that in front of you. We pray now that the work that you send them to, you would supply all their needs. We pray that you'd supply all the money that they need, that you would support them emotionally, that you'd help them to support each other emotionally and spiritually. And we pray um, what we know is their greatest prayer, that there would be an impact in what they do, that you would have many people that you have already chosen before they've arrived, and that they would discover those who you have already been working in, and that you would turn those people to you through their work, and that they would um, have spiritual children where they're going. We pray that you'd bless them with that. We, of course, we pray that you'd keep them safe and that they would have good food and stuff. But we pray for what they long for, which is fruitfulness. We pray that you would strengthen them for faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, hugs after the service. Okay. Um, is this the right remote? Let's see. Okay. Um, I have a saying at my house. I don't do for kids what they can do for themselves. And I've said this to my kids a lot of times, almost as many times as show me, don't tell me, right? And my kids have pretty much gotten used to it. Like when I say it to them, they're like, okay. Um, what, what the, when I get the reaction of like a cow looking at a closed gate is when I say that to other people's kids at my house. Other people, I say to other people's kids, they ask me to do something, I'm like, I don't do for kids what kids can do for themselves, right? And now you, that, it, and it's partly, because I'm stirred with the righteous annoyance of unnecessary helplessness and laziness in children, right? But, but in, a, in addition to that, um, it's amazing, like, if you are firm with children about doing stuff for themselves, and you're there to give them a little advice if they need it, they are become in either resourceful or they realize they didn't want the thing very much. And I like telling them that. If they won't do it for themselves, well, you don't want it very much. Why are you interrupting me, right? And otherwise, they figure out a way to do it for themselves often destructively, but that's why I don't have nice things, you know? <laughs> I think it's important, because here's why. Nature can develop children. They can just biologically grow, and parents can develop children, and, and churches and schools can try to help develop children, but children have to develop themselves. If you get a child who grows up into an adult that everybody has worked to develop, and they haven't worked to develop themselves, what you're going to get is like a narcissistic jerk, that's what you're going to get. Because they have to develop themselves, right? And now why do I say that? What does that have to—is that just a rant I want to start the sermon with? Maybe, right? <laughs> but one of the things that this passage makes really clear is that God wants us to build ourselves up. 
God wants us to be. Now, that may not sound like a very spiritual message to you. You'd be like, Nick, are we supposed to talk about like how it's all God and like God is going to— Yes, and I will even in this sermon. But the point of preaching is to exposit the point of the passage. And the point of the passage is that Jesus fills us so that we can be his fullness. In this passage, it literally says we are supposed to build ourselves up. Okay, now that may annoy you, so I'm going to spend the rest of our time explaining what that means, okay? So the, the first thing it means is, is that Jesus' victory has given us what we need to build ourselves up, right? This is so, somewhat review from last week. Um, this is Jill's drawing. She did a great job in the 20 minutes I gave her to do it. And the much worse drawing I had made. So if, if you follow the flow of this passage from last week, it talks about Jesus descending into the lower earthly regions and then ascending as this victorious hero, freeing people from slavery, leading a great train of captives that he had taken captive, right? People who, who were captives that he had freed, and then he has this great plunder that he gives them. And so he is this victor who has pulled these people out of slavery with these great spoils, right? And then it says, that's why he himself gave— the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, that those five people are first delineated as a gift. They're part of these spoils, right? It says he gives grace to all people, right? That's why he himself gave these five groups of people, right? And it says it's their job to equip the saints, people who already belong to Jesus. It's their job to equip them. Well, why? Because they're supposed to do the work, right? Not those five people. They, so if you can think, think about it this way, right? If you're in the military and you, you, you're done with basic training, you're about to ship out, you're supposed to get your stuff. So you need like the backpack and you need a gun and you need a bunch of helmet. You need a bunch of things. And so you've got to go to the quartermaster or, wherever, or the armory and you've got to get that stuff. And they issue you that stuff, your equipment. And you can't fight without that equipment. But that equipment can't fight without you, right? And so you got to take the equipment, and then you got to go fight, right? If you go to work, most of you have stuff that you need for your job, like laptops or pens or, I don't know, collared shirts, right? Like, you have a certain amount of equipment, right? Like, and I said collared shirt. My, my daughter's a caddy, right? So you, you need a certain amount of non-stick shoes. You need equipment, right? And you can't do your job without the equipment. But your, your equipment can't do your job, thank goodness, or you wouldn't get paid. And it's the job of those five people who God gives these graces to equip the saints. What does that mean? Because the saints are going to do the stuff. Well, what's the stuff? The stuff is to build up the body of Christ. Well, you're like, Wait, Nick, aren't the saints the body of Christ? Yes. Yes, you get it? The saints are building up the body of Christ. They're building themselves up. Now, there will be new saints as the body of Christ is built up. So the body of Christ is those who are already believers, but also new believers who are coming in. And the saints are building them up through this equipping. But the saints are building up the body. They're the same group of people. They're building themselves up, right? It actually says it more explicitly later, if you don't think that's strong enough. And then he says the point of that, of them building themselves up, is so that they will A, grow in unity, and B, grow in maturity. You see— that's the kind of thing you just can't do for people, okay? You just can't do that for people. You can, le you can lead a horse to water, right? And you can't make them drink, right? That's the saying. I've actually tried to do it because I, I wanted to see if that saying was true. And you, I'm just going to tell you, you shouldn't try to do that to a horse. They don't like it. <laughs> you know, it turns out their nose is right next to their mouth, and they think you're drowning them, and then they retaliate. So, um— Right? When, when people are having—like, this is one of the most difficult things about marriage counseling, right? When you get a couple that's fighting—really fighting each other, and they just—they want to be right more than they want to understand and show their affection for each other. Because it's just—that's what you primarily want to do, because you want to justify yourself, right? Because you got to feel like you—you're real. You have to feel like you can't lose yourself in being—in loving another person. And when people really feel attacked, they choose themselves first, because they don't know what it would be like to not have a self. And so they fight, Right? Which is sinful, but it's also understandable, right? And so they fight, and you're like, you guys, you gotta stop fighting. I can't tell you how many people are like, listen, you can fight and die, or you can choose to understand and love each other. It's up to you, because here's the thing. I can't, I can't make them do it. I can't make them do it. I've never been in a conflict where I have functioned as a mediator where I can make a group stop fighting. 
to choose their future instead of themselves. You can't make anybody do that. They have to do that for themselves. They have to build themselves up. They have to choose unity themselves. I cannot make a unified High Point Church. I can equip High Point Church to be unified. I can tell you all the truths. I can tell you about what Christ has done to the dividing walls of hostility. I can help you understand how we could relate to each other. I could try to help understand two different parties and try to explain how they could understand each other. But I cannot cause anyone to choose unity. You have to choose unity for yourself, right? And I can't make anybody choose maturity. I can't tell you how many times I want to tell people just grow up. Just grow up. Scrub. I can't tell me how many times my wife wants to tell me that. And my mom. But I have to choose maturity. We all have to choose maturity for ourselves. You have to choose yourself, right? And so Jesus knows that. So he gives us these people who equip us to do two things together we have to do just with each other. Right? Brothers and sisters, sisters and sisters and brothers and brothers have to choose for themselves to stop fighting and to grow up. Does that make sense? That might have been a little bit of a self-interested parenting statement, but it's, it's true for the family of God. Does that make sense? And so then the result will be if we choose those things together— Negatively, we will no longer be pushed around by every wave. And in this case, it's false teaching, right? We won't be led by the wrong leaders. If we're unified with each other, and if we're mature, together we won't be led astray. Do you understand? One person is fairly easy to lead astray. A thousand people in agreement with each other who are mature are very difficult to lead astray. What are you going to do next time you have to vote to accept a senior pastor? Right? I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Like, I, w- hey, listen, I cut down two 28-inch diameter trees yesterday. One of them was 70 feet tall. I could be dead right now. Right? Like, see my blood blister? Like, right now. And like, you'd have to get a new senior pastor. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to do that? Do you have unified and mature people to put on a search committee? When they bring a candidate in front of you, are you going to be unified and mature enough to grill the heck out of that sucker? You, you're, I, some of you weren't here when I got here. When I got here, nine years ago, four days, ten hours. Four days, ten hours, I got grilled. God bless them. That's the right way to pick a senior pastor. I can't believe—they just couldn't find anybody better than me. But they grilled everybody the way they should. <laughs> we're going to find—we're going to find somebody better. We're looking right now, okay? But you see, you get— Negatively, you're just not—if you're mature, you don't get pushed around. You don't get deceived. You figure out together who to follow. Does that make sense? And then secondly, you—what's the point of the body? The point of the body is to be connected to the head. You'll grow up in the stature of Christ. But remember, everything in this passage is plural. Everything in this passage is us. Remember, it was the Christian minister, John Donne, not Bon Jovi, who wrote No Man is an Island. Because he understood theologically— we become ourselves together. It's one, of the, it's one of the paradoxes and strange ironies of human development, okay? So we grow up into the head. That's the plan. That's what's going on. That's what all of chapter 4 is about. It's about how God is making us ourselves again in Christ through redemption to transform and change us. Now next week, Pastor Lloyd is going to specifically talk about some things that can go wrong with that and how we cannot fall for those things. It's going to be really important. You need to come next week, Okay? And bring all your friends, right? Even all your Facebook friends, even though they wouldn't come and they're not your friends, right? Okay, so <laughs> let's move on to the second thing. Okay, the second thing is that Jesus has given, has given us leaders to equip the saints, right? The saints are, are it, the word is just holy ones. That is, those who Christ has made holy through faith. That is, the people who have believed in that Ephesians 2 way, where they have, whoops, they have recognized that they've, they've contributed basically only sin, But because of God's great love for us in Christ, he has made us alive through his death and resurrection and made us into his workmanship. And we have received that by trusting in him and believing in him and becoming his, right? 
and that is received in our practice through the sign of baptism. So if you say that you're a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized in your own profession of faith, you should do that. It's part of you cooperating with and agreeing with and living out what you say you are in Jesus. Because for evangelicals, we put a lot of weight in, in the sinner's prayer, like confessing with our mouths and believing, right? And that's a good thing, and the Bible talks about that. But the Bible marks conversion with baptism. Does that make sense? All right. Now, the second thing is Jesus gave leaders to equip us. Now, in some ways, the reason why these five people are, are given looks like it's mainly because it's an example of the grace that Jesus has given to everyone. So some of us who don't have graces or gifts that are very obvious for their use in the church, we'll look at people like me who's standing up front, obviously. Like, I do this a lot. And you're like, you come to church and Nick's going to be up on the stage. And so you're like, oh, there's Nick doing the spiritual gift he's got, right? And so one of the things I think Paul is doing is saying, he's trying to persuade you that you have spiritual gifts by talking about the people who everybody just naturally accepts as spiritually gifted, right? So he's like, don't you see? It's Jesus, the conquering victor, who himself gave, right? Read the text. He himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers. He did that. The verse before that, it says, don't you see? He gave grace to everyone. So if you believe, if you believe in any place in your heart and mind that I have any spiritual gifting, right? Which you should if you're sitting here, right? Unless you stumbled in, God bless you, right? I'm an example of God giving grace that he's given to everyone, including you. Does that make sense? If you've ever listened to Pastor Lloyd and felt the way, he's an example of the gifts of grace God has given to everyone, including you, right? Pastor Mike, same thing. You say that for anybody who you think has a spiritual gifting, has grace from God to be one who builds up the body of Christ, right? Okay, now— I want to go through what these five offices are because High Point Church is one of those churches that is a conglomeration of everybody in terms of background. That sometimes happens at like broadly Christian churches that aren't denominational and have pretty like vague doctrinal statements in terms of certain specifics. That there'll be people who like grew up Roman Catholic here, and there'll be people who grew, who like are, were like raging charismatics here. And there'll be people who are like fundamentalist Baptists and like, you know, like, I don't know, like snake handling something and like people who are as atheist as you could be. And like, they're all here. And so you get to a passage like this and you're like, people, some people think it means one thing. Other people think it means another thing. And nobody's quite clear on what all these things are and how they should function and what that means. Okay. And so I'm just going to tell you all the right answers and then we'll all be on the same page. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I don't have a lot of time to do this. So but I'm going to try to lay down some basics for us, okay? So the, the first thing, an apostle, right? What is an apostle? So the most general definition I can give you right now is an apostle is one who is sent to do a work or teach content and is distinguished from a disciple who is a learner. The New Testament has the apostles and other references to apostles. So an apostle literally means apostolos. We just took a Greek word and turned the Greek letters into English letters and made that an English word, Okay. The Greek word is literally apostolos, exactly the same word. And it just means somebody who is sent. A disciple means somebody who comes to learn, right? That's an akolutheo. And we get the word acolyte, like in Catholic churches, a person who follows the priest around. It means to follow, right? So a disciple is akolutheo. It's a follower. And apostolos is a sent one, right? Somebody you send. So it'd be like, you have a class, right? You teach somebody a class. Now you send that person out to be a trainer. You go, now you go and you teach those people. That person's an apostolos, an apostle, okay? Now, in the Bible, there are a number of passages that designate just the 12 as the apostles, okay? And it is those 12, usually plus the apostle Paul, that are seen as the apostles in the New Testament. And the reason why that distinction is important is, is that all of the writings that we have that are specifically, that you can historically believe and know that those 12 wrote are in our Bible, and we hold them as the authoritative, inspired Word of God written. Now, one of the reasons that's become something of a conflict is in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, during the charismatic movement, especially in the Western United States, there were some people who had who had taken the title apostle, who were giving revelation as also prophets, which we'll get to in a minute, and 
in the church, practically, that was being treated as the revelation of God. And, and the Bible was kind of either not being treated as the Word of God, or these were being held on equal footing or something like that. And so these other people that were using the word apostle seemed to be taking at least practical authority similar to the apostles. Does that make sense? And there are some people who were very uncomfortable with that and wrote books about it and so on. Now, here's the thing. The word apostle, when it's not referring to the apostles— no one has ever argued in the history of the church that the writings that came from that kind of sent person were authoritative scriptures that were the Word of God written. No one has ever really claimed that, right? Like for 2,000 years. Maybe some charismatic folks like went overboard with that, but like that's not a thing. There have always been people that the church has recognized as apostles, okay? The word we generally use for them now is missionaries. Okay, the, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for example, so for example, in the book of Romans, he calls Andronicus and Junius. Junius is almost certainly a woman's name. Um, he says, um, my, among my relatives who have, who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and were in Christ before I was. Now, whether or not they're family members in Christ or family members and they'd all been to prison together, which is kind of funny out of, out of context, right? Um, he calls them both apostles. They're not the twelve, right? And so Paul is ascribing the word apostle to people who are not among the twelve. You can see this in other places too. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 2, he says, Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So what, here's what the apostle Paul is saying. Yes, I am not one of the twelve. That's true. I am this other guy that Jesus, like, got a different way. And I became the apostle, the one sent to the Gentiles, while the other 12 apostles mainly went to the Jews, right? And he's like, now listen, I get that you— because these people are apparently complaining, well, you're not really an apostle. You're not one of the 12. And he's like, wait, what is the mark of an apostle? What is an apostle's seal, right? The seal of an apostle is who they've won to Jesus. That's the seal of an apostle. That what marks an apostle is somebody has gone out, has been sent. They have taken the gospel and the teachings of the gospel to people, given it to them, they've accepted it, and they've broken new ground. They've done a new work, and those people have believed it. So those people become a seal, that is, the demonstration that the gift of apostleship is on that person. And so when Paul claims in this context that he's an apostle, he doesn't say, Jesus knocked me off my horse. I saw Jesus in that moment. Having seen Jesus, I get to be an apostle. That's not his argument. His argument is, because you exist, because there's a church in Corinth, because there's any believers in Corinth, that is the mark that I'm an apostle. You see the difference? And so in that context, or for example, in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. Now think about this. Now think about this for a second. Just, it's a couple steps of logic. If the, Cor the Corinthians had people coming to them that they liked better than Paul, who they said, these guys are apostles. Here's what that means. The people in Corinth, as Christians, believed in the teaching of the first century church that there could be apostles that weren't the twelve. Because Paul's complaining they're receiving the wrong people. Well, everybody knows who the twelve are. So who are these other false apostles that they're receiving? Well, apparently, they were open to the possibility of other people who weren't the twelve being apostles. What Paul is saying is you're receiving the wrong people. But what that implicitly assumes is there are non-the apostles apostles because of this. One of the graces that God gives, one of the most difficult and hard graces that God gives, is he puts in people's hearts the great and noble work to go out into hard places and to break new ground and to do things that have not been done. And it's listed first. And it's listed first, I mean, probably partially because of the pain and the difficulty and the nobility and the respectability and the admiration that we should have for people willing to take upon themselves the sacrifices of going out and living by faith and living among a people not their own, often of a language not their own, and often to be buried in a land not their own, because they believe the gospel must be preached in a place where it is unknown. Right? And we call those people missionaries. To a lesser extent, we call the saint, we call them church planters. Church planting is a little different because they're often going to places that are like Christ-haunted or where there's been Christ, Christ has been known before. But they go there because a new work needs to be done, right? And so in some ways, you—I I think what we should have is like 
essentially a split definition of apostle in our minds. There is the apostles whose writings are the authoritative word of God written. And there are apostles. There are people who are sent. And that is a grace that God gives. Don't think that the glory of the grace of apostleship is only that Jesus gave us the twelve. That is an amazing gift that he gave us, the twelve apostles. And their legacy is a great and amazing legacy that should make us filled with joy. But the fact that throughout history, God has inspired men and women to leave the comforts of their home, to leave their families, to leave the wealth they could have amassed for themselves, to leave the basic likes and dislikes of culture and neighbor, to go to places that are unknown, where Jesus is unknown. Places where they didn't have medicines to deal with the non-native diseases that they didn't have antibodies for. People who were sent out. There, was, there were several movements in America where when you were sent out, the one piece of equipment they sent with you was you had to bring a coffin with you. Right? The reason why most of us are believers today is because at some point in history, someone was sent. And so, I don't know if I'm going to get to the, to the applications, but I have, there's some applications on this about, about the nobility of this work and how it's a good thing to desire. And, and what will you do if you feel called to it in retirement or to leave what you're doing or if one of your children, God forbid. No, God bless you with the idea that one of your children might wish to do such work, right? Um, this is a, a beautiful and great grace of God. Does that make sense? Okay, um, we need to move on. The prophets. There is no evidence in the New Testament, contrary to the belief of some, that the gift of prophecy is going to end before the return of Jesus. Okay? So in the last point, I may have picked on some charismatics a little bit who have taken the idea of apostleship maybe too far. In this one, I'm going to pick on the, some very conservative people who believe that things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and some of those sort of miraculous and strange intuitional gifts have ceased. There's no evidence of that in the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you read it carefully, it says that when perfection comes, the imperfect will disappear. In the, con and in the context, he literally refers to speaking in tongues. And in chapters 12 and 14, he specifically talks about the gift of prophecy as well as other sort of strangely miraculous gifts. And perfection there does not mean the canonization of the New Testament and the full Bible that we have today. Perfection there means the return of Christ. He says, we see now dimly like in a bad mirror. Then we will see face to face. Listen, the Bible is fantastic, okay? It is the word of God written. It is not seeing God face to face, okay? You have a small view of eternity. If you think the locution, then we will see face to face. We will we will know even as we are already known. If you think that's the Bible, okay, you may be worshiping the Bible in a way that is unhealthy, and you don't have nearly as great enough vision of what heaven is going to be like and why we should long for it as we must. The Word of God written isn't heaven. <laughs> heaven is going to be better. This is going to seem like marriage when we get to heaven. Do you understand? This will be obsolete. It is, it is a well from which we can find life now. The knowledge inscripturated here and what has been done that this testifies to is indispensable for our redemption now. It will be an afterthought in heaven. We will see and live and taste and experience what this talks about. Immediately. Right? Now, therefore, the New Testament teaches that these miraculous gifts— Word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, prophecy, will therefore persist until the return of Jesus, right? Now you might ask, that's really interesting, Nick, because I've never seen anybody do them at High Point Church. Well, they are done at High Point Church. They're often not done from this stage. They're often done in personal conversations and within small groups, and as people pray for one another, they actually do happen at this church, right? What prophecy is, for those of us who don't know, or who may have a, what I would consider a misdefinition, is God speaking through us through the more intuitional faculties of our experience, right? Usually people describe it as they know something that they should say that they believe is true, and they don't know how they know it, but they think it's from God. You know how sometimes you'll have like stuff you know and you don't know why you know it? And then you have stuff that you've deliberated on in your conscious thought, 
It's the result of your deliberative thought. And sometimes your, what, what is the result of your deliberate thought is that in conflict with your intuitional thought, right? But if you, I think if you understand human nature well enough, our intuitional thought is thinking. And our deliberative thought is also thinking. Both of those come from different kinds of places. They come about in different ways. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us through them somewhat differently. He can speak and does speak into the deliberative process as you think through things. And people with the gift of teaching tend to utilize that more. That's how I tend to feel like God speaks to me is as I deliberate through something, I find insights and then I work them out. And as I work them through, I feel like God has led me what to say but it's through this deliberative process, right? And that's why I describe one of my main spiritual gifts as the gift of teaching. Other people will, will, will sense that God wants to say something true, sometimes predictive, but true, that needs to be said now. And to give God's people a sense of this is happening right now. Because oftentimes when we read the scriptures that were inscripturated 2,000 years ago, sometimes people can feel this natural sense of distance from the two, especially people who aren't particularly spiritually mature, right? People are like, well, that's the Bible. That was way back then. And they don't realize that the same God is exactly the same, not deeply yet. And so sometimes when God has somebody speak something right now, sometimes, and usually it says exactly what this already says. It just says it into the right now. That can really help people. Does that make sense? And that really does happen. And so, um, God gives this as a grace, as a gift to his church, so that things that he wants to say to his church in this means can be said. Does that make sense? And that's a real thing, right? And there's actually a verse, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians, that says, don't forbid, don't, don't like neglect or be hateful towards words of prophecy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. It literally says, don't do that. Why? Because it's weird. That's why you would despise it and forbid it. Right? People speaking in weird languages? Come on. That's weird. So what would the, what's the natural thing a human being would do? You'd forbid people from doing it. And prophecy, that's weird too, because it's like, like, whose authority is this? And like, who are you to talk? Because prophecy can be a gift anybody has. And prophecy can be something that anybody experiences. And so you can have somebody that's nowhere in the hierarchy of the church say, hey, I think God might be saying this thing. Right? And completely twist the authority structures, and of course, women are, are encouraged to prophesy in 1 Corinthians 11, so it's, there's no gender restriction or anything on it. Kids can prophesy. Now, in the scriptures, the elders are supposed to judge each prophecy, right? They're supposed to deliberate over the prophecy and make sure that it is trustworthy. But it's not supposed to be an authoritative stamp-down process. It's supposed to be a, a process of openness and affirmation whenever possible, right? And what's important to recognize is that what this, this scripture says is that these are gifts that God gives the church. So if you're uncomfortable with, with those things, things like discerning between spirits and words of knowledge and speaking in tongues and prophecy, it's okay to be nervous about them. It's okay. It's okay to think that speaking in tongues is weird or that prophecy is weird. That's totally fine, right? It is not okay to forbid them. It is not okay to teach that they, they no longer exist when the scriptures explicitly teach otherwise. And so then we, in prudence and maturity and unity, need to figure out how to do it well together, right? And it's one of the reasons why prophecy isn't the only gift. There's lots of other gifts that helps order these things. Now, <clears throat> the third thing is evangelists. Evangelists are people who are gifted and who have specialized in sharing the gospel with others. They go out and they preach the gospel, right? Now, remember, these are equipping people. So you may be like, oh, thank God there's evangelists, so I don't have to do it. And, um, no, remember, these people equip God's people for works of service. So the reason why God gives evangelists is because God wants who doing evangelism? You, right? That's the whole point. Otherwise, this wouldn't be an equipper. The fact that there are evangelists literally means the opposite of what we want it to mean. We would love for it to be like, oh, thank God. But what it really means is God has given evangelists as equippers, which means they're going to equip who? The saints. That's us. In what? Well, probably evangelism. So that we can do evangelism, right? But the good news is God wants to equip you. He doesn't want to just make you do it. Which is why the church should embrace people with gifts of evangelism and apologetics. And we should learn from them. In a, in a few weeks, there's going to be an apologetics class on Christian ethics. Where a PhD student in Christian ethics, in a, well, in philosophy, is going to teach a class on Christian ethics. How to show that what Christianity says is good and right to do is good and right to do. Right? That's part of the defense of the faith to help clear up misunderstandings, to help lead people to Jesus, right? So if you're not clear on that stuff, going to that class 
right? Allow somebody who's gifted in this area and specialized in this area to equip you to better explain to other people why trusting in Jesus is credible as well as important. Does that make sense? And then there's a little bit of controversy as to whether pastor-teacher means pastor-teacher, like it's one thing. I'm not going to get into the reconstruction of that. It's unsolvable, right? But you might hear some people refer to the quote, the five-fold ministry. Well, you know, at our church, our pastor walks in the five-fold ministry. I've literally had people say, you should go to that church because at that church, the pastor walks in the five, meaning that that pastor does all five. He's an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher, right? Okay. Um, here's what I think about that, okay? Because it's, a, it's kind of a big thing in the charismatic world. And on one level, I think that it's a, it's a good thing to think about because um, it's worth thinking about why God— why Paul says these five things, why God gives these five graces, why these people with these gifts exist in the church. That's worth thinking about, right? And so like you can—okay, this—you can go to highpointchurch/sermonnotes. highpointchurch.org/sermonnotes. That's why that's in there, because you go read it later, okay? <laughs> but it's worth thinking about why God does this, right? And the answer is we need all five of these gifts. Nowhere does it say— Nowhere does it say or imply it's ever in the same person. Now, does that mean it's ne it never is in one person? Well, not really. I mean, you really could have somebody who— God, I mean, God can give whatever— In fact, in three times in this passage of Ephesians, it says the measure of the gift. Meaning, God doesn't just give people different gifts. He gives different people more and less. Right? Um, God is—there's no doctrine of equity in the Bible where everybody gets the same amount. That's not in the Bible. Now, what is in the Bible, um, especially in the beginning of the Bible, is this, there's this time where God gives food to everybody. And it says that and people went out and gathered it according to their ability. And it said the people who had much didn't have too much, and the people who had little didn't have too little. And the Bible kind of has this built-in ethic to it that there's like this range within humanity. That there's such a thing as too much, and there's such a thing as too little. And he wants to keep people within the range of not too much and not too little. But he doesn't make everybody the same. Does that make sense? And that's true in gifting. Not all measures are the same. So some people are more gifted than others. And he, God has purposes in that, right? But one of, the, one of the ways to think about this, and one of the reasons why I think these five are mentioned is because my— I've, I've labored over this for a while, and, and what I believe is this, is I actually believe that these five offices— were itinerant offices, and that's why Paul named them here. I believe that these, these groups of people were sent out, and they went to various locations, and they didn't stay in any one location for very long. Or they might be like, they might be in one place most of the time, but then they would go out from there, right? And so Paul would send Tif Timothy to Ephesus, and Timothy would minister to Ephesus, but then he'd go to Laodicea and Colossae and Heriopolis. He'd go to other places. And Paul was always sending different people in different places. He sent Apollos from Ephesus to Corinth, and then he would go over here, and they would go over there. And so there was this sort of group of Christian ministers that were always moving around to other places. And then each local church would have elders and deacons that were the pastoral shepherding ministry of that local church. But there was no such thing as seminary then, and churches didn't have like seminary-trained people. You just picked whoever seemed the most spiritually mature. They were the elder, right? So how does that church develop? How do you develop the leadership of that church? Well, the answer is the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that were traveling around would come to your church, and they'd stay with you for a month. And you'd have more meetings during that month. And that person would teach you and teach you and teach you and teach you. And you'd grow five years' worth in that month. And then they'd leave, right? Because what had they done? They had just equipped them. And then they left, and then that church was left there to do the works of service, to build itself up. Does that make sense? I think that's the purpose of this. Now that's—that makes what we do weird, because if I'm one of those, why am I here all the time? Right? Now, Manohar's in India. I'll go to India and be a teacher over there some. You know, my, Mike and I do a lot of consulting with other churches. We—Mike um, and Lloyd and I and Evan, and we've been filling the pulpit at Monona Oaks— church for like four months. We've been going over there and teaching, right? And so to the extent to which we're invited in, we try to become a little bit more itinerant, right? And hopefully if God blesses us as a church, there'll be more of that, not less. Where like those of us who are, who are gifted in some of these things, 
that we will function more itinerantly. I believe that's actually the New Testament model, that the elders pastor the local church, and people who have these gifts are as itinerant as possible so that many churches can be nourished, right? Do you think what Jesus wants, you think Jesus wants his five mega churches in Madison? Do you think that's his goal? He's like, you know what we should have in Madison? This is what you should have in Madison. We should get like five of the most gifted people, and we should get like everybody to go to their church, and we should build these huge churches that take millions of dollars to upkeep, and so that like if one person falls into sin, it'll ruin like 3,000 people's faith. That's what we should do. Like we should do that. That would be fantastic, right? You think that's what God, that's what God wants? God probably wants piles of small communities that are in regional unity with each other, that in relationship different people trust each other, and there's a network by which they function well, and you've got the most gifted people are actually going in lots of different places, equipping people, and you don't even know where they're going to be any given Sunday, and the whole church grows and builds itself up. Because what would you have to do if Lloyd and I and Mike weren't here very much? What would you have to do? Everything. You'd have to do everything. You'd have to build yourself up. You see, Jesus doesn't do for his kids what they should be able to do for themselves. Does that make sense? Now the bad news is we're on point two, and we're out of time. <laughs> so um, if, you ha- if you don't download the Engage and Equip podcast from the church, this would be a great time to do it because the second parts of this sermon will be on that this week. Um, uh, we do that to equip you. That's why it's called Engage and equip. And there's a bunch of stuff in point three and the applications I'd love to share with you. Um, but more important than what I have to say about this is what is the institution of unity and maturity that Jesus created in the Lord's Supper, right? He said, you know, whatever preaching happens, what I want you to do is often take the bread in the cup to remember we are all one in this. We all come on the same purpose— We all come as the same kind of sinner. We all receive the same beautiful grace. We are all going to be members of the one body. We are all going to be participants in the one great feast. We are all given the same humanity, rehabilitated by the same spirit, into the same godliness, into the same family as brothers and sisters. And so um, we take this bread that symbolizes God's broken, the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Christ, as both remembrance of the tragedy by which our salvation was purchased, and also looking forward to the future banquet of the glory when we will no longer look into a mirror darkly, but we will see face to face. Does that make sense? So let's pray together, and then our our folks are going to pass out the elements, and then if you'll hold them, we'll receive together. Let's pray. God, as we take these elements together, and as we prepare to receive them together— Um, We pray that we'd use this ritual just as we do it, receiving together, to remember that we are all one in you. We are all different. We have different experiences. And natural life would create different dividing walls of hostility between us. But we commit ourselves to you. We, We glory in the salvation you've given, and we pledge ourselves to receive the gift of unity and oneness, that we would become one new humanity out of the many. Please use this moment to accomplish this in us. Holy Spirit, come and move in us and change us in Jesus' name.